From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. With more than 14,000 Palestinians killed by Israel in Gaza, a so-called humanitarian pause in fighting, as well as an exchange of prisoners of war is set to begin. Our political prisoners are still locked in cages, subjugated to the most disgusting types of torture. Meanwhile, as Free Palestine demonstrations continue globally, even more evidence is surfacing that Israeli forces likely killed many of their own citizens on October 7th, as recent reports document that they fired indiscriminately with bullets, tank shells, and Hellfire missiles. Israel used disproportionate force on its own citizens in order to dislodge a politically driven military offensive by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. All that and more coming up. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Just ahead of the November 24th scheduled pause in fighting and exchange of prisoners of war, Israel stepped up its targeting of civilians and hospitals in Gaza, with the dead totaling more than 14,000 since October 7th. One-third of the dead are children, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. The ministry also told reporters that Israel arrested the director of Al-Shifa Hospital, Dr. Mohammed Abu Salmiya, and other doctors as they accompanied patients on a UN World Health Organization evacuation of the hospital. Meanwhile, as part of the pause in fighting, 50 Israeli women and children are scheduled to be released by Hamas and 150 Palestinian women and children held in prisons inside Israel are scheduled to be released. Despite Israel's lurid accounts of atrocities allegedly carried out by Hamas on October 7th, Hamas has long stated that a key objective of Operation Al-Aqsa Flood was to secure as many prisoners of war as possible for leveraging the release of thousands of Palestinians being held and tortured in Israeli dungeons, most without charge. At least 200 Palestinian children are among the imprisoned. This objective of the October 7th military operation to secure prisoners to trade was one of the facts explored in a recent report about what really happened on October 7th by Gray Zone editor Max Blumenthal, who was interviewed by Chris Hedges on the Real News Network. The report starts out this way, quote, For all the sensationalism surrounding the events of October 7th, when Hamas broke through the Gaza fence and seized territory in the Gaza envelope, as part of Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, there is still much that we do not know. The official Israeli death toll from the attack is estimated at 1,200 civilians, revised from an initial estimate of 1,400. Among this figure are several hundred civilians, which Israel says were killed by Hamas militants. Other testimony from survivors of October 7th suggests an alternative explanation, that in its fervor to defeat Hamas, Israeli commanders may have willingly targeted and sacrificed Israeli soldiers and civilians in the crossfire, end quote. I continue to read further down in the report, quote, Tuval Escapa, a member of the security team for Kibbutz Bieri, 
told the Israeli press that he set up a hotline to coordinate between kibbutz residents and the Israeli army. Escapa told the Israeli newspaper Haaretz that his desperation began to set in. Quote, the commanders in the field made difficult decisions, including shelling houses on their occupants in order to eliminate the terrorists along with the hostages, end quote. The newspaper reported that Israeli commanders were, quote, compelled to request an aerial strike against its own facility inside the area's crossing in Gaza in order to repulse the terrorists who had seized control, end quote. In addition to documenting the Israeli bombing of its own military facility, Blumenthal discussed two other sites of attacks and deaths that day, Kibbutz Bieri, the site of most civilian deaths, and where there are visible tank tracks, as well as testimony from a survivor whose partner was killed by Israeli fire. And finally, the Nova Electronic Music Festival, where cars were filled with those fleeing, were incinerated. This is Blumenthal and Hedges discussing the attack on cars fleeing the festival, comparing it to the highway of death in Kuwait when the United States bombed retreating Iraqi soldiers in 1992. You have all of these images that the Israeli foreign ministry put out of cars that are completely melted and their corpses inside are charred. And those to me are telltale signs of hellfire missile strikes from Apache helicopters. And the Apache uh, crews, the squadrons, they put out video afterwards of themselves shooting cars, hitting cars with Hellfire missiles, and shooting people who were just pedestrians walking on the ground with cannon fire. We don't know who those people were. But if you look at the, I mean, a lot of the cars were heading back to Gaza. So they were very likely cars of people from Gaza who may have been taken captives. And so many captives or would-be captives were killed. Uh, was one of them Shani Luke, this woman who the Israeli foreign ministry has been making such a big deal of, who was a you know festival party goer, uh, who was attractive, and I think she was like a German citizen, and there's some video of her being taken. They say they found a skull fragment from her. Was she, was she in a car that was hit by a Hellfire missile? Unclear, but it's very clear that many of these cars were hit by Apache helicopters, and the helicopter pilots said they had no idea who was in them. They were shooting people also on the other side in Gaza as after they entered by the afternoon of October 7th. It's very clear to me that many people were killed. Many Israelis were killed by Israeli forces, along with many active duty uniformed Israeli soldiers who were actively engaged in the siege of Gaza who were combatants. In an editor's note after this interview was published, the Gray Zone added, quote, since the publication of this interview, an Israeli police investigation has confirmed that Israeli Apache helicopters killed numerous Israeli citizens at and around the Nova Electronic Music Festival and that Hamas did not know in advance about the festival. The Israeli government has also acknowledged that 200 of those it counted as Israeli casualties were, in fact, Hamas militants killed by its forces on October 7th and that it may have marketed images of their charred bodies to the public as proof of Hamas's brutality, end quote. These images were then used in order to justify its genocide in Gaza. In culture and media, Al Jazeera is reporting that former State Department official Stuart Seldowitz 
has been arrested and charged with aggravated harassment, hate crime stalking, stalking causing fear, and stalking of a place of employment. After videos were posted of him repeatedly harassing an Egyptian-American food vendor on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. After these videos went viral, New Yorkers rallied around the food vendor, setting up tables and chairs near his stand and sharing halal food. Meanwhile, the attack on those speaking out against genocide in Gaza continues with actress Susan Sarandon being dropped from the United Talent Agency after she spoke out for Free Palestine at a rally in New York City. Also, in a recent interview with journalist Abby Martin, Alana Hadid of the family of fashion icons and supermodels revealed how her family is constantly harassed by Zionists and told the story about how her family was impacted by the Nakba and forced from their homes at gunpoint by Zionist militia in 1948. My father and his family were ethnically cleansed in 1948. They lived in Safed, and there was actually a Hadid quarter of that city that was built by my family. It still exists. It's now, Safed's now called Sfat. It's a, a quite orthodox Jewish city. And the buildings that my family built are still there. My father was born in 1948. As was tradition, uh, my grandmother went to Nazareth where her family was to have her her children so that her family could rally around her while she was um, giving birth. So she had gone to Nazareth to have my father. She took her children with her. And the family, the Polish family that was living with my family in Safed had, while my grandfather was at work, had taken over the main house um, and were protected by soldiers. There wasn't an IDF then. It was the Ergun or Hagana, but um, they had surrounded the house and told my grandfather that he couldn't take anything with him, that he had to leave. My grandmother was also expelled and her family from their home in Nazareth. And she walked with her children and a donkey to Damascus. And they were refugees there. I think it was months later that she found her husband, my grandfather. And they were refugees for 14 years, multiple places all over the Middle East until they eventually um, immigrated to the U.S. It was violent. The family that my family had allowed in to live in their home when they had no home, when they had been expelled from Poland, ended up taking his home. And they were forced to leave by gunpoint. Uh, So what we're seeing right now has brought up a lot um, for my family, my father especially, We've heard these stories over and over again of the way in which our families were violently expelled from from Palestine. 750,000 families were expelled violently from Palestine in 1948, and I never thought I would see it again. Finally, global demonstrations continue for a ceasefire in Gaza to end the siege of Gaza and for an end to occupation and apartheid in Palestine. Protesters were arrested after they marched with a banner and then sat down during the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City. 
As we go to broadcast on November 24th, known as Black Friday, there are shut it down for Palestine events happening nationally. Here in D.C., the shut it down rally begins at 1 p.m. at the Foggy Bottom Metro Station. More information about today's and future events is at shutitdownforpalestine.org. And those are headlines and happenings. Up next, voices from the November 17th shut it down for Palestine here in D.C. Stay with us. I'm seeing my people deceased. They killing our children ain't even discreet. These murderers tasting our blood like it's sweet. So one who tastes silent been pissing me off. These Hollywood calling give give gets it on. Who's the real goal? Cause that sure ain't LeBron. Khaled is the biggest bitch of them all. Me with the two. Tell the media that we ain't fools. They pushing this narrative like it's a war between two. Which simply ain't true. One side is oppressive, the other's oppressed. And guys are all on over 2,000 deaths. They call us barbaric, now make it make sense. I'm fighting for Palestine, for my last breath, and I'm gone. From the river to the sea. Palestine. You messing with Gaza, you messing with me. Things need to change. Things need to change right now. And we do not look to our political leaders for that change. No, we do not. They fear when we take the streets because they see how powerful we are. They know that the people hold the power. And that is exactly why they have been assaulting Palestinian protesters all over the U.S., all over the world. I'm not out here to beg the system for a change. I'm out here to tell the system we make the change. We cannot be surprised when the U.S., a colonial regime, supports another colonial regime. It's not that hard to understand. I've seen a lot of people shocked. Not sure how the U.S. could support this. Not sure how every news outlet could be spreading their hilariously wrong propaganda. It's not a surprise when they were built on the same fundamental values that Israel was built on. White supremacy, racism, colonialism, imperialism, capitalism are the values on which both of these terrorist states were built on. So I don't ask Biden, I don't ask any other leader of this horrid country, I don't ask the pigs standing outside the Union Station for change. Not that slow anymore. 
can rise up and resist and fight back and continue to live, then we have no excuse to cower. No excuse. than their freedom right now. Not your school paper, not your interview. Not, it's important, not as important as our lives. Not as important as the people. Not as important as liberation. I know we're angry. You don't have to explain it to me. I, I, I'm angry. We're all angry. But what's important is what you do with that anger. Are you going to join an organization? Are you going to join the party for socialism and liberation? Are you going to join the Palestinian youth movement? Are you going to join Maryland to Palestine? Are you going to get tired of posting about Palestine? No. That's exactly what they want. So we tell them we will never get tired until our oppressors are held accountable and until we reach does not stop after a ceasefire if we get it. No, it does not. This movement ends. We are finally free when all of us return to our ancestral homeland, when all of our oppressors are held accountable. Who wants to go back to Palestine? Hurrah, 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 hurrah
socialism and liberation. That's right. And you and I are gathered here this evening standing with people all across the United States and with social movements all around this world saying there will be no business as usual until Palestine is free. Let me hear you say no business, as usual. No business, as usual. No business, as usual. And indeed, there can be no business as usual as long as Israel, with the support of U.S. imperialism, continues to bomb hospitals, continues to bomb children, continues to bomb places of worship, to carry out its genocidal project against Palestine, there can be no business as usual. Now, what you and I have to always remember is that the violence, the brutality, the devastation, the inhumanity that the Palestinian people face every moment of every day is multi-layered. We know that there's indiscriminate bombing, but the economic stranglehold is also in place. Violent settler gangs carrying out vigilante violence is still in place. The United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Activities reports that since October 7th, there have been at least 208 settler attacks in the West Bank alone. That same report says that in at least a third of those incidents, they included threats with weapons, including shootings. That same agency reports that half of those incidents were carried out with the facilitation and assistance of Israeli forces. So my friends, what that means is, similar to here in the United States, racist vigilantes work hand in glove with the state to carry out the violent ethnic cleansing of Palestine and all of this violence. Indeed, back on October 10th, just three days after this latest resistance began, the ultra-nationalist defense minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, he gave out 10,000 rifles, helmets, and sets of body armor to, quote, civilian security teams. Now, of course, we know that these so-called civilian security teams are nothing but deputized death squads that are in place to carry out violence and displacement against the Palestinian people. And all of that material and equipment that I just described was provided by the United States. And we talk a lot. We talk a lot about the $4 billion a year in U.S. taxpayer money that goes to Israeli apartheid. But did you know that 15 million of those dollars comes from D.C. Yeah. 
$79 million of those dollars comes from Maryland. $106 million of those dollars comes from Virginia. And this is based on information provided by the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. And so what that means is this region where we live and work, instead of spending those millions of dollars on fighting homelessness, instead of using that money to fight hunger, instead of using that money to stop racist gentrification and displacement, that money is going to facilitate genocide against the colonized people. And we say no more. But I want to point something out to you. With the seemingly insatiable bloodthirst of the Zionist state of Israel and the bloodthirst of the U.S. imperialist state that supports and undergirds and funds Israel, it knows that it's under threat. It knows that its days are numbered. And if you don't believe that, if you think that you're spinning your wheels, if you think that your protest doesn't work, have a look to my right. Look at how they've blocked off the whole entrance to a train station that we pay for. Now, we're here in the United States that tells the world that it's a, a shining city on a hill. A glowing example of democracy and human rights for the rest of the world. But they won't let us exercise the protest rights that they tell us are sacred. That's just a part of the hypocrisy of this capitalist imperialist system. But they also know that all their tactics and all of their tricks and all of their attacks aren't working. And if you notice, they've been playing all the hits. They've done the lying about atrocity to justify the war on Palestine. That hasn't worked. They tried doxing and exposing students who stand with Palestine, riding around with trucks, blasting their faces. That hasn't worked. And since all of that hasn't worked, now, the capitalist state is returning to another classic tactic, and that's attacking the movement through the media. Already, we have seen from the so-called liberal media, like the Washington Post and the New York Times, lies about this movement being attached to so-called terrorism. But now... Now we're also seeing right-wing media outlets like Fox News saying that this movement is being controlled by a foreign government. And when they dusted this off, they didn't have to put forth too much effort because we just heard this nonsense in 2020, didn't we? They said that the rebellion against racism in the streets of the United States were not being driven by a desire to end racist police terror once and for all. Apparently, according to them, it wasn't driven by a desire to end white supremacy. 
apparently another government has to tell black people that they're oppressed. But we know that this is a part of our history. If we go back to the uh, civil rights movement and the black power movement, the capitalist imperialist state has always tried to undermine and skew and stigmatize people's movements for liberation by saying that they are too stupid, too ill-informed, and too disorganized to advocate on our behalf. But over this past month and moving forward through our presence here tonight and all over this country, we have shown that to be the lie that it is. And you know, this capitalist class, this wealthy elite, these people who are the directors of U.S. imperialism, the people who fill their pockets with the wealth generated by the sweat of our brow, they are terrified of our movement and they are terrified of our unity. Yes, these capitalists are scared to death that organizations of Palestinians, of Arabs, of Muslims, of black people, people fighting for women's liberation, people fighting against climate change, people fighting for workers' rights, labor unions. This racist, white supremacist, capitalist class is terrified that there will be a people's movement outside of the two ruling class parties that will not only free Palestine, but free us from the institutions and systems that oppress us again. The Palestinian resistance has not stopped, and our solidarity cannot stop. And if you all don't hear anything else I say this evening, I want you to know and understand that our most powerful, our most devastating, our most excruciating weapon that we have against Israeli apartheid against U.S. imperialism and against capitalism, our most powerful weapon is our organization. We've been talking about the students tonight. I was at Howard University just this week when the Howard students were bravely calling out their university that tells the world that it's such a fine institution, calling them out for their support of apartheid. And do you know, do you know that later that evening they were supposed to have a, a what they call a dialogue about Palestine? You know what that means. A dialogue means that we gonna hear quote unquote both sides. Because apparently, the one committing genocide and the victim of genocide are one in the same according to this kind of thinking. But when they heard that those students might stop by for a visit, they decided that maybe it wasn't the best time for this little dialogue. And so they canceled. And that is why, as we stay in the streets for Palestine, as we stay in the streets for liberation, we'll continue to raise every voice, lift every fist, stomp every foot, clap every hand, and keep the fight going.
existence is justified. When people are occupied. Resistance is justified. When people are occupied. Socialism and liberation. That was Sean Blackman of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And before him, Yasmin of From Maryland to Palestine, speaking outside Union Station in D.C. on November 17, 2023. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Up next, Palestinian writer Xenia Azam, who works with young people in Gaza for the organization We Are Not Numbers, speaking at Plymouth Congregational Church here in D.C. Stay with us. It's that time of the year, and I know so many of our on-the-ground listeners will be receiving solicitations for donations. And I want to remind you that On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored show, and we are a not-for-profit. We are a registered not-for-profit in the United States. So that means that anything that you give is tax-deductible. It could be that some of us are in a position to be very generous. And if you are, I ask you to please consider On the Ground in your end-of-year giving. The easiest way to give is on our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash on the ground show. You can also give on PayPal and find out other ways to give on our website on the ground show.org. But if you enjoy the show, if you check out the show, if you enjoy what we're able to produce as this labor of love, please join with us and uh, be an activist with us, be an active agent of articulation in these perilous times and support independent media because we only have you to rely on. So again, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and also onthegroundshow.org has links to PayPal and the address to send a check if you can do that. But whatever you do, know that it will be much appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, it's in one.
Thank you, Robert. Thank you, uh, Reverend Hagler. Thank you all for coming here today. Plymouth Church has been at the forefront of progressive politics, social justice issues, and really an ally to Palestinians for so long. And we appreciate this, and it's an honor, a real honor to be here to speak with all of you. My name is Zaina Azam, and uh, I'm Palestinian as well. I'm not from Gaza, but I'll tell you a little bit about my history. Every Palestinian has a very special story, and we all fit together into this larger story of Palestine. <clears throat> my parents were, became refugees in 1948. They fled their home in Haifa. They're originally from Nazareth, in what's now Israel, and they are also part of the Christian community in Palestine. They were a family out of 800,000 people who fled Palestine in 1948. And in my case, my family moved to Syria. They stayed there for many years. I was actually born in Syria. Then when I was a baby, we moved to Lebanon, to Beirut, and I had my childhood in Beirut, and we immigrated to the United States when I was 10 years old. So the narrative of dispossession has been overarching in my family history, and it's been central to my understanding of the world course, the plight of Palestinians. So when we moved to the U.S. as immigrants, we had very little in our pockets. We worked really hard, and my parents worked really hard to make ends meet. And all of this really has made me profoundly aware of people who are marginalized, people who have been discriminated against and dehumanized. I don't have family in Gaza, like my sister. I do have family in the West Bank and in, inside Israel. So I have a deep connection to Palestine. My connection to Gaza, in addition to just, these are Palestinians, these are my people, is um, I've been volunteering for an organization actually called We Are Not Members. And it's the whole idea of Palestinians who don't want to be members, who pa Palestinians who want the world to know that we are a people, we are humans, we have we have lives, we have hopes and dreams, and these are young people in Gaza who are writing about their lives. And um, actually, you can look up this organization, WeAreNotNumbers.org. And so my role has been to serve as a mentor. I'm a writer and a poet myself. And so I've been serving as a mentor for these young people writing about their lives. And so I have all, and I've been doing this since 2015. So I've worked with many young people from Gaza. We work on Zoom, we work through WhatsApp and email and even Facebook Messenger. And it's been such a, a real honor for me to work with them because I get to see what these young people are thinking and feeling. And so I, I actually wrote an article for Time magazine just a couple of weeks ago about my experience with we, we Are Not Numbers. It's called Listening to Voices of Youth in Gaza. So I urge you to read it. 
So this connection with Gaza has been very special to me. Uh, Robert asked me to introduce myself. As I said, I'm a poet and a writer. I, um, I have spent my life working in Middle East affairs, in creating, raising awareness about the Arab world and about Islam in U.S. society. I specifically worked at Georgetown University working with uh, K-12 teachers so that they can learn more about our area of the world and teach better about it as well. And I volunteer, as I said, for We Are Not Numbers, but also for other Palestinian organizations. Uh, Growing Palestine, we help farmers in Palestine. Um, and I'm also involved locally in Alexandria, Virginia, where I live, with a group called Grassroots Alexandria. We work within the community uh, with affordable housing, uh, undocumented immigrants. So my scope is larger than just Palestine, but today I'm here to talk to you about Palestine. So this is a very difficult time for the people of Palestine, um, including Gaza, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and also the 20% of Israeli citizens who are actually Palestinians. Who, who live as second-class citizens within Israel. But if, of course, today we're talking about this horrific time in Gaza. These people in Gaza are experiencing ethnic cleansing and genocide in real time. We are all grieving these deaths and injustices. And we are shocked at how leaders in the United States and much of the Western world are allowing such killing and devastation to continue, especially in the United States. Just calling for a ceasefire has become politically fraught. And our political leaders are not listening to the voices of the people who are filling the streets of the entire world, demanding a stop to the bombing. I found a poll, a recent poll, as of November 15, 68% of the respondents in the U.S. in a Reuters-Ipsos poll said that they agreed with a statement that Israel should call a ceasefire and try to negotiate. Three-quarters of Democratic Party people and half of the Republicans also supported the idea of a ceasefire, all of them putting them at odds with the Democratic President Joe Biden, who has rebuffed calls from Arab leaders, including Palestinians, to pressure Israel into a ceasefire. So there's a huge disconnect between our leaders and, our, and the people. And I know this happens across the board in many, on many issues. But this one in particular is very egregious from my point of view. When I thought about what I wanted to say to you today, I really had so many ideas and so many thoughts, and I thought, okay, how am I going to organize myself? And I thought, I'm going to come up with statements. I am angry because, and I am sad because. And then I started writing, answering these questions, and I realized that I'm both angry and sad about it. I'm angry and sad about the killing of thousands of people in Gaza, and especially the children. Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta of Shifa Hospital which has been, as you know, bombed several times and under siege until it was taken, recently taken over by the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. He calls the war a war on the children of Gaza. 
There's a UNICEF spokesperson recently, his name is James Elder. He called Gaza a graveyard for thousands of children. There's a new acronym for many of the child survivors in Gaza. WCNSF, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family. Entire generations of Palestinian families have been wiped out, and often only one or two children survive as orphans with no families left. I personally cannot wrap my mind around how this generation of the children of Gaza what's left of them, is going to manage for the rest of their lives. We talk about PTSD, they're going to have PTSD all their lives, but it's not post-traumatic syndrome, it's really just continuing traumatic syndrome for them. them. They're always going to feel this, they're always going to feel the grief and loss of their families. I'm angry and sad about the dehumanization of Palestinians that is rampant in the media and in speeches by U.S. and Israeli leaders. This dehumanization serves to justify Israel's killing campaigns of Palestinian civilians and its decimation of Palestinian civilian structure, especially hospitals and schools and refugee camps. The fact that our president, President Biden, brazenly questioned the number of Palestinians killed and repeated rumors about the killing of Israeli civilians and basically gave Israel the green light to bomb and besiege Shifa Hospital and so much more. And this is just incredible to me that this keeps happening. It's unconscionable. Palestinian lives matter. I am angry and sad about the unfathomable destruction of Gaza, the buildings and the schools and the hospitals and the infrastructure and life as Gazans know it. Swaths of Gaza are now unrecognizable and have been reduced to rubble. That hospitals in particular have been targets by Israel tells me that their aim is to destroy not only life but also the possibility of healing. Think of that. The possibility of taking care of the sick and the injured. They're wiping that out, this whole possibility. And I'd like to say that, you know, they keep looking for something in Shifat Hospital, which is the largest hospital in Gaza City, something to say that Hamas is there, and that they could bomb the hospital. It doesn't matter if there are a couple of Hamas fighters there or if some guns there, which they haven't found. It's still a war crime to bomb a hospital. It's still a war crime to bomb a hospital. I'm angry and sad about the world letting Israel's killing and destruction of Gaza continue unabated. I am heartened that millions of people of conscience all over the world are protesting Israel's carnage in Gaza and demanding a ceasefire, but I am so angry and sad that their leaders are not listening to them nor heeding their demand. And I'm angry and sad about this push for a humanitarian pause. Think of that. You pause 
so you can give people some medicine, some food and some water, and then come back and kill them. It makes no sense. We need a ceasefire now. I'm angry and sad about Israel's plans to ethnically cleanse the people of Gaza and push them into the Sinai. They have been warning the Gazans from the beginning to move southward. And by the way, they move southward and they, and they bomb them anyway. And this plan to make them refugees outside of Gaza has been clear from the start. Even as they fled south, as I said, Israel bombed them and continues to bomb them. This ethnic cleansing is a war crime in itself. It's reminiscent of the Nakba of 1948, the Nakba being the catastrophe that our sister talked about when her father and my family, uh, her father and mother and my family fled and faced this incredible catastrophe of losing everything, their homes, their livelihoods, and their lives, their their memories, their traditions, their history. I'm angry and sad that so many in the United States are swallowing Israel's propaganda and continue to see Israel as the victim, whereas the real victims are the thousands of Palestinians who are being killed by Israel. Israel is a nuclear power. It's rated as having the fourth strongest military in the world, and it's the tenth strongest power in the world. And notice in the media, this is one thing that I would like you to think about, is when you read the headlines, notice how often many of the media outlets kind of cover up when Palestinians died, whereas Israelis are killed. Palestinians are killed. Palestinians are massacred. Remember that. See that. And take these media outlets to to task about this. I'm angry and sad about the rising hate crimes in the United States against Palestinians and Arab Americans and Muslims. These acts are directed against our allies as well, both in these communities and including members of the African American community, Jewish Voice for Peace, and many others. We continue to stand in solidarity. We must continue to stand in solidarity. There's much more I'm angry about. I stop here. I'll leave these things where they are. But I do want to take this opportunity to do two more things. My asks of you. Prayer is beautiful. We need you to pray for us. And like my sister said, we need to take action as well. Learn the history. Learn about the current situation. The situation in Gaza did not start on October 7th. There's a huge history, decades before that. It's important to understand the historical context. Be our ally. Speak out. Write to the media. Call them. Take them to task. Write to our political leaders. Call for a ceasefire. And finally, as a church, you might consider signing the Apartheid Free Pledge. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, There's a pledge. It's online. We affirm our commitment to freedom, justice, and equality for the Palestinian people and all people. 
We oppose all forms of racism, bigotry, discrimination, and oppression. We declare ourselves an apartheid-free community, and to that end, we pledge to join others in working to end all support to Israel's apartheid regime, settler colonialism, and military occupation. I urge you to sign this pledge as a church. And my final piece is, uh, I said I was a poet, and I wrote a poem about three weeks ago, and it has been, it's sort of taken a life of its own. On social media, especially, um, it has thousands of likes and shares. I've never experienced anything like this. People are reading it in, you know, gatherings, on, in webinars, uh, on the hill. And I tell you this just to say that po poetry has, is powerful, right? It's very powerful. But more importantly, the message of this poem has res is resonating with people everywhere. And it's really important to us. And you'll see why. The poem starts with an epigraph. An epigraph is a short quote that gives you the um, uh, context of the poem, gives you the reason for the poem. So this is the epigraph for the poem. Some parents in Gaza have resorted to writing their children's names on their legs to help identify them should either they or the children be killed. Write my name. Write my name on my leg, Mama. Use the black permanent marker with the ink that doesn't bleed if it gets wet, the one that doesn't melt if it's exposed to heat. Write my name on my leg, Mama. Make the lines thick and clear. Add your special flourishes so I can take comfort in seeing my mama's handwriting when I go to sleep. Write my name on my leg, Mama, and on the legs of my sisters and brothers. This way we will belong together. This way we will be known as your children. Write my name on my leg, Mama, and please write your name and Baba's name on your legs too, so we will be remembered as a family. Write my name on my leg, Mama. Don't add any numbers like when I was born or the address of our home. I don't want the world to list me as a number. I have a name, and I'm not a number. Write my name on my leg, Mama. When the bomb hits our house, when the walls crush our skull and bones, our legs will tell our story, how there was nowhere for us to run. Thank you. Palestinian writer Xenia Azam will have the last word on this episode of On the Ground 
onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or supporting us on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. I also link to each show on my Instagram page, which is Esther underscore Iverum, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I-V-E-R-E-M. You can also write us at contact at On The Ground Show. The Free Palestine Movement is continuing with actions, some of which are being held as we go to air. You can follow continuing actions at shutitdownforpalestine.org and at answercoalition.org. Our podcast is On the Ground with Esther Ivarum on all your podcast platforms. The music we played this hour included Jay Dean and Carter Zayer and, and the Dean Squad, Palestine Will Be, Shadia Masoor featuring M1, The Kafia is Arab, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.